Thanks, Kenny. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Welcome to the new space. We're getting everything figured out here. You guys hear me all right? All right, cool. Cool. It's good to have you guys. Um, We're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John, and we um, are picking up right where we left off in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, you can start turning there. And I just want to say thank you to all of you dads who are here today, and to all of you kids, and to all of us who, um, whether we had the most amazing dads ever walking in shoe leather, or whether... Uh, we had absentee fathers, but we know, we've come to know God as Father. We still have a reason to celebrate Father's Day, amen? amen. We have, some, we have some, uh, some amazing dads represented here in the community. I'm thankful for that. And the truth is, the, the only thing, the only thing that can change us from little tyrants as kids into loving sons is the love <laughs> of our Father, and we see the love of our Father displayed so beautifully in the gospel, and that's what this text is going to walk us through today, so I'm excited about it. Um, We're going to turn to John chapter 11, verse 45, and we should have scriptures right over there, too, behind me. This is so weird, I can't see you guys. I'm like blinded by the spots. It's actually kind of hot up here. If you guys are here, say amen. Amen. Woo, I like that. All right. John chapter 11, verse 45. We're just going to dive right in today. we got a long way to go and a little while to get there, so let's dive in. John chapter 11, 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So in case you're wondering what Jesus has done, last week we covered this. Jesus has just raised Lazarus, a guy who's been dead for four days from the grave. And I, I don't care whether you've been a believer your whole life or whether you're, you don't even consider yourself a Christian. That is insane. That's amazing. A guy who was dead, verified for four days, comes walking out of a hole in the earth, heart beating and alive. And there, it, we talked about this last week, right? This is something that God does for their good and for his glory. And many people believe. But the text says here, not everyone. Not everyone believed. How many of you guys know that almost in every crowd, there are some who just, no matter what, they'll never believe? They won't believe if they see someone verified dead for four days come walking out of his tomb. Doesn't matter right? Because they're not open to the ways of God. And so those skeptics, those cynics go running off to tell the Pharisees, verse 47. And what we see happens here next shows the fear that finally led to Jesus' death. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Just a picture here. This council, this is the Sanhedrin. Okay, this is the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. 
So this issue here is huge. This isn't anymore the small mob picking up stones because they think Jesus is blasphemed, like back in John chapter 10. No, this is, this is huge. And what's at stake here, we notice, is not the truth. This council, their goal is not to find the truth. The goal of this council is survival. If more and more people keep believing in Jesus, the Roman Empire is going to come in with all of their empire might, and they're going to crash down on the very little bit of control and freedom and liberty that we have. And they're going to destroy our temple, and they're going to destroy our nation. Why? Well, because there's this growing sense that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, Right? He's the rightful king of Israel, like it said back in John chapter 6. And if this, this number of followers continues to swell and build, then there's going to be a Zionist frenzy that fights for Israel over and against Rome. And Rome's going to come in, the greatest world power that they've ever seen at this time, and just crush it. And in all this, these Pharisees will not only lose their nation, but they'll lose their positions of power. So now Jesus isn't just some minor blasphemer off in a corner somewhere that maybe needs to be stoned to death. He's a threat to the very existence of their kingdom. That's how they see it. Ironic, no? Like the, the savior who came to save them, they see him as a threat. Let's see what happens next. In response to this threat, you see Caiaphas, he, he has a word. He says something. And he's the high priest. And we're going to hear what he says in this moment. But in a moment, we're also going to learn that the word he says is not ultimately his word. But it's God's word. And here's what Caiaphas prophesied. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So in other words, he, he rebukes them and he says, guys, here's the plan. Kill him. It's simple. Let's get rid of him, right? Better that one dies so that the nation won't. We kill him so that Rome won't kill us. Substitute Jesus for us. That's his plan. Now, the next two verses, 51 and 52, are kind of the central pas uh, verses in this passage. They're John's interpretation of what Caiaphas just said. And we're going to skip those for a second. We're going to come back to them and focus on those today. But for a second, let's run through the rest of the story. Skip on down to verse 54. Because Jesus knows things are volatile, because Jesus knows his time's not yet. He goes off into some obscure little town in the wilderness. Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come or that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the, the chief priests and the Pharisees had, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So you guys see the tension here in this text that's building? The great feast of Passover is here. The crowds are swelling in Jerusalem and making feel, uh, things feel even more unstable, if you will. 
and the people are looking for Jesus. They're asking about him. This is like when you go to build a fire, this is like the dry tinder that's just waiting for a match of messianic fever to light it. And the outcome of this council's words are hanging in the air. If you find him, let us know that we might arrest him. All right, so it's, it's a tense mode. That's the context. Are we tracking? Okay, so let's go back to what Caiaphas says. Verse 50, 51, 52. Caiaphas said in 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John, the writer of this gospel, says, guys, there's more meaning here than Caiaphas initially intended. Okay? He says in verse 51 and 52, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, there are at least two points. We're just going to focus on two simple points today in this passage. That they'll have a huge effect on your life for your strength in tough times, for your comfort when you're faced with your own sin, and for your confidence in God's Father heart for you today on Father's Day. These words are going to speak to your freedom from the tyranny of your own brokenness and for your joy in the very personal love that God has for you in Jesus. Okay, two points. Fear and love. That's it. Fear and love. You guys track that? All right. Simple. Let's dive right in fear. We have to ask ourselves why. Why did they want to kill Jesus? And the answer is pretty simple from the text, right? It's fear. They were afraid. They were afraid that Jesus is going to rise in popularity and power. They were afraid that the Romans are going to come in and crush them. They're afraid of losing their kingdom. But it wasn't just the Jewish kingdom they were afraid of losing, was it? Look at the text. It was, it was their kingdom they were afraid of losing. The text says, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're terrified of losing the thing they love, the thing they've come to love actually more than God. And that is their kingdom. And that terror shapes them into these little tiny tyrants. In order to really understand their mindset, though, we first have to understand this whole idea of kingdoms. Because, like, unless you watch Game of Thrones, here in democratic America, the whole idea of kingdom is kind of lost on us, right? This whole, this whole concept. So this idea of kingdom is this. It's, it's simple. We all have kingdoms. I love the way that um, Dallas Willard says it in one of his books. He defines a kingdom, and he says a kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's your sphere of influence, if you will. Like we all have a certain area within our life where what we say goes, period, right? Certain things that we feel in control of. And some people have more influence than others. Sometimes this person's influence and kingdom bumps up against this person's kingdom. You guys ever experienced that? In fact, a huge part of life is like realizing and differentiating between somebody else's kingdom and your own and how much influence do I have? That's why kids, like their favorite word is what? No, <laughs> yeah, mine, yep. Mine, 
Mine, that's all seagulls and children have that in common. <laughs> Mine, that no, Gavin's two favorite words lately are no and stop. He loves those. In fact, it was funny, we were, uh, you guys went and watched Dory yesterday. We we're walking back across the parking lot and Nancy's just in a happy mood and she sings to Gavin. She says, Gavin, watch out for the cars. They might hit you. And he says, stop it. Like, stop what? Protecting you? Stop singing? Why did he want her to stop? What? We went to Barnes and Noble and we're hanging out with Gavin and he goes, dad, can I buy something? I said, no, Gavin, not, not today. Dad, come on, I want to buy something, right? Well, this builds to the point where I'm like, Gavin, if you say it again, we're leaving right now. So he stops. We go in the children's room. We're reading The Giving Tree or The Bernstein Bears or something. And he goes, Dad, Dad, I have a question. Yeah, can I buy something? <laughs> no. So we go to leave the store, and he's saying, Dad, can I buy something? Please, why can't I buy something? Dad, and he's getting mad. And finally I said, you know what? We get outside. I said, you know what? Here, I'm calling Nanny and Papa. I'm telling your mom, I'm telling Ivan and Lily, there's no buying anything for Gavin for a whole week. Meltdown. (laughs) Like it was insane. I've never seen him do that. I was embarrassed. I was like looking around. What in the world, right? Because he's experiencing this whole idea of kingdom, what's his, what he has control over and influence in, right? And we're all trying to figure out how much domain, how much control we have. Well, throughout the scriptures, the heavens, the highest heavens, are known as the kingdom of God. It's a place where everything is exactly as God wants it. The realm of his authority. Angels carry out his every desire. And the kingdom of heaven is very real. It's a reality kind of beyond our own, but it's always crashing into our reality. It's always showing up. And much of the Jewish mindset was focused on bringing God's kingdom to earth. Why? Because the earth is not a realm. It's not a place where everything behaves exactly as God would have it. Why not? Well, it was at one point. Let's take a minute and look back because you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been, right? Let's take a second. Way back at the dawn of time, God's original creation, it was beautiful, harmonious. We're all created in God's image and likeness. And Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and his reign. Humanity destroyed that beautiful harmony, the connection between us and God and us and creation and us and one another. So God effectively said, okay, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. That's why throughout the scripture you see verses like Psalm 115 where it says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth God has given man. We, we rejected him. We want it our way, mine. No, stop. So he gave us over to what we wanted. How's that gone so far, by the way? Horrible. <laughs> like, think about it, right? Think about it. Within, within one generation of Adam and Eve eating the fruit, disobeying God, and having a little marital trouble, Cain murders his brother. And Cain's progeny, Lamech, is like a crime lord who brags about his murderous acts. Right? The, the, the earth is careening out of control. The fires of hell 
are building up and destroying everything and sin is multiplying. And today, when we look around us, like think of all the things we don't like about the world. Bigotry, death, greed, famine, disease, war, destruction, it all tracks back to this point. We don't want your way, we want ours. Heartbreaking. But there was hope. Everybody say amen. There was hope one day a Messiah would come, a king, as the prophets referred to him. He would establish the kingdom of his father, David. He would somehow bring things back to the way they were meant to be. So a few hundred years later, here comes Jesus. Showing up on the scene, he teaches his disciples to pray. And what's the content of that prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He teaches the multitudes. And what's the content of his message? He went everywhere proclaiming, what's it say in Mark 1.15? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God's kingdom is here. It's breaking into our reality. In God's kingdom, there's no more sickness, so Jesus heals. In God's kingdom, there's no more hunger, so Jesus feeds the multitudes. In God's kingdom, there's no more lies or deceit, so Jesus teaches the truth, explains it in profound ways that are simple enough for a child to understand. In God's kingdom, there's no more death. So Jesus raises the dead. And now the Pharisees, they've had enough. They're sick of it. They don't want his kingdom because it's threatening theirs. They've worked too hard to get there. They've made too many sacrifices. They've begun to find their lives and their hopes and their affections all wrapped up in it. God's kingdom of Israel has become theirs and they aren't gonna let it go without a fight. So they plot to get rid of him. Tim Chester says it this way. At the cross, we see the full extent of our human sin. When we get the chance, we kill our creator. Let's stop and pause for a second. Okay, let's give these guys a break. Stop looking at the picture of the Pharisees and start looking in the mirror for a second. Let's ask ourselves some honest questions. You guys game? What is your kingdom? What would you be afraid of losing control of? What is that future that you've envisioned for yourself? Maybe one day I'll be a successful entrepreneur and I will get out from the American workplace and I will make my own hours, make my own fortune, right? Or maybe your dream is to go away to some far off country because you've been inspired by Mother Teresa and you're gonna change the world and you're gonna feed the multitudes and you're gonna make a difference. Or maybe you just want love. Maybe you just want that significant other, that someone who sees you as you are and loves you and your heart is craving that. We all have things that we've dreamed and we become kings and queens, setting our own rules and wanting to be free from anyone, even Jesus telling us what to do. Let me ask you this. What's your heart so set on? Your affections, your desires, that if Jesus came and you felt like those things were threatened, like maybe you might lose control of them or he might even ask you to give them up, what things in your life would cause you to silence the Savior's voice in your life? Here's another way to ask it. 
Where do you struggle with ongoing sin? You know, the kind that keeps creeping up. What are the things, what are the triggers that keep causing these debilitating negative emotions in your life? Anxiety, depression, fear. Let's make it really simple. Where might you struggle to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Because here's the deal. We all have those areas in our life. If we didn't, we'd never sin. We would live these perfectly good lives submitted to King Jesus every day of our life. But to the degree that you don't live perfectly, selflessly, sinlessly, that's the measure of your ongoing denial of God's lordship in your life. There's no other way to slice it. In our own way, we are all little tyrants, just like my sweet four-year-old. Holding on to our kingdom with clenched fists. No, stop it, mine. I want, I need. And it's not always bad things, right? Sometimes it can be good things. It's not always our sin that needs to be repented of. Sometimes it's, it's our righteousness. I remember... I went on sabbatical. I was burnt out. I was tired. I was struggling in ministry, and I was exhausted. And this is a few years back. And while I was on sabbatical, um, I was reading the story of the rich young ruler. Are you guys familiar with that story? Guy comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, yeah, great. Give up your treasures. Sell all that you have. Give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Because he sees what's in the guy's heart. And I never really related to that story in my life. Because I grew up poor, probably. So I didn't have riches, so I was like, yeah, man, just give up what you have, all $3 of it, right? But for the first time in this time of my life, God really convicted me and showed me that even I had treasures. There were things in my life that had become so valuable to me, trophies on my mantle, things I found my identity, my worth, my value in. You know what they were? Ministry. And a business I had started, a nonprofit. I was recycling, and my, my wife and my kids, my family, and I felt God saying, are you, willing, are you willing to walk away from those kingdoms that you've lifted up above my kingdom? Yeah, you started out with the right intentions, but those things have been corrupted because our hearts are idol machines. They're factories that just keep pushing out idols, aren't they? We keep taking things, and we like elevate them above God, even good stuff. I felt God say, are you willing to walk away from, not literally like divorce my wife and leave her, but like in my heart, stop elevating her above God. Because I was destroying them under the weight of my expectations that they could never meet because they're not God. And I was destroying my life in the process. God's kingdom had become my kingdom. And I, I suspect it's, it's the same with these Pharisees, with these rulers. I don't think that they got involved with ministry in the kingdom of God with the wrong intentions. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But I don't think their hearts were just against God. They were probably hoping the Messiah would come at one point. But somewhere along the way, his kingdom had become their kingdom. And now they're holding on to his kingdom with clenched fists. And here's the problem with that. What ends up happening to our kingdom? The same thing that ended up happening with theirs. Do you guys know what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD? 40 years after they crucified Jesus, in marches Titus Andronicus with all of his Roman Empire might, and they destroy Jerusalem. 
and they destroy the temple. And these guys' dreams, they see them crumbling all around them. Their sense of control is shattered. The thing they loved more than God was destroyed, and they were left with nothing. And that's what happens whenever we exalt things above God. That's the bad news. You can move across the world and find yourself to, in order to find yourself and then end up more lost than ever. You can get everything you want and still be left wanting. Jesus says you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. In our quest for happiness and validation and control, we often place our kingdom above God's. And that kingdom will always topple. In fact, like I'm not sure if Jesus stood up here today and preached his message that it would be very popular with us. Like if you went out and preached the exact message that Jesus preached, I'm not sure your friends would think like, yeah, I'm going to follow him on Facebook. They would probably click unfollow, right? Keep you as a friend, but unfollow you so they don't have to see your posts. (laughs) I have good news for you. God is your king and he rules over you. We all like the idea of a kingdom, but we don't love the idea of a king. Why? We believe Satan's lie. It's a lie that that rings true in our ears every day. That's why your kingdom come, your will be done is the single greatest vision in human history. But if we're honest, how, how do we normally pray? How do I normally pray? I find myself coming to God and asking him to give me my kingdom, my life, the way I want it. Give me happiness. Give me control. Give me validation. My kingdom come. My will be done but he's a God who loves us too much to allow us to destroy and distort our lives. His kingdom is what we need to come, not ours. Let me ask you, honestly, who do you think would make a better king? You or God? (laughs) Mike says God. I was just trying to imagine yesterday if Gavin got his way always, right? If Gavin always got exactly what he wanted, like, he would have no money. He would just have a room full of toys that he was already sick of. He would eat no vegetables. He would just eat candy all the time, nonstop, right? He would have no friends. He would just have enemies because, like, he told my mom and dad this week, he said, Gavin, you have too many toys at our house. Do you want to take some of those home to your house? And he said, no. And they said, well, why not? He said, because my friends come over, and they take them, and they break them, Right? He doesn't want to share. And maybe you say, yeah, he's four. What what are you, 30, 50, 70? Are you older or wiser than God? Thank thank you. (laughs) One honest person in the building. (laughs) Compared to God, aren't we all like four-year-olds? Yes. Thank you. Do you really think you know what will make you truly happy? What will add value? What will add satisfaction to your life? Honestly, do you think you'd make a better king of God? Better provider? Better protector? You guys remember Bruce Almighty? Where he tries, he's God, temporarily, and he just decides to answer all the prayers via email, and he's just getting sick of it, so he finally just clicks reply all, yes. And everybody gets what they prayed for, It's chaos, right? 
God graciously saves us from the tyranny of our own desires because they would eventually destroy us, which is why we see Jesus when he comes preaching the kingdom. He says things like this. He that would save his life will lose it. But he that will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What things? Well, in the context, he's talking about basic things that we are afraid we won't have. Food, clothing, shelter, health, tomorrow. And like a good father, God is patiently saving us from ourselves. And here's the best part. He does it in an unexpected way. Question for you. If God came and God forced control out of your hands, how would your heart respond to that? Would you love him more? Would you trust him more? Give me that. You ever parent like that? Any moms and dads honest in here? No, you cannot have it right now. I've never done it. I'm just seeing if you guys are on. The way God comes is baffling. It blows my mind. Because I can't change my heart. Lord knows I've tried. I can't make myself want his kingdom. I can't make myself desire his will. I'm often too bound by fear to let go and let God have his way in my life. But Caiaphas' words in this text reveal God's heart. And his words point to a truth our only hope, actually, that can transform your heart if you'll let it today. Notice what he says in verse 50. It is better for you that one man should die. And this is our second point, which is love. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then John says something amazing in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. In other words, God brought these words to his mind. God put them there, and God has a meaning. So on one level, these are Caiaphas' words with Caiaphas' meaning, but on another level, these are God's words with his meaning. And the point I'm making here is this. These are the words that sealed Jesus' death. These words are Jesus' death warrant. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, so he said these words, and God wanted Jesus dead and resurrected and reigning forever. So he said these words. God spoke through Caiaphas. It is better that one man should die for the people. God said that. Better that Jesus died. Better. Yeah, better. Better than any plan in the universe. That is what God said. Therefore, the death of Jesus was not mainly this like random set of tra tragic events that happened to turn out for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. God himself served the death warrant on his own son. He didn't just predict it, he unleashed it. This word of prophecy hunted Jesus down in the garden of Gethsemane and put him under arrest. This word nailed him to the cross and killed him. There was no escape. This was the word of God. It is better that he die. It is better that he die. And in the mind of Caiaphas, this substitution was this. We kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. We substitute Jesus for ourselves. But in the mind of God, the substitution was this. I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. God substitutes Jesus for his enemies. Can, can you imagine that? How much does God love you? 
that while you were his enemy, he sent his son to die in your place, to purchase you back from the dead, to rip you out of hell's mouth and save your soul, to win your heart. What love? Can you imagine that? God killed Jesus. I know it sounds harsh to say that, so let me qualify that. Because when we think killed, I think we think sin. It sounds like it's just cruel and it's callous. We know God never sins and God is never callous, right? The reason I say God killed his own son is because in Isaiah 53, that's the language the prophet uses. Isaiah 53, look at verse four. We esteemed him smitten by God. God smote him. Verse six, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. God smote Jesus. God crushed Jesus. It's the very center of our Christian faith. God substituted Jesus for us. If anybody ever asks you what you believe is the center of Christianity, just say substitution. And then when they ask you what that means, go for it. Preach the gospel. Second Corinthians says, for our sake, everybody say that's me. You're still with me, good. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin, then he killed him for what he made him. Why? For our sake, for you, for me. Now, I used to struggle with this. I love my kids so much. Think about my sons, think about Gavin. I couldn't imagine seeing little Gavin suffer or die. How could God allow this? One day I, I realized, as I, I was praying about this and thinking about it, it was about a year ago in my journal, I was reading this last night in August. I realized I was asking the wrong question. It wasn't how little did God love Jesus to allow this. It was how much did God love me? Because God loves his son infinitely. And yet he was willing to part with him temporarily and let him go through grief so he could have you and me. What love. And that's the only way we're saved. Caiaphas said, we need to kill Jesus in order to save ourselves. They wanted to save themselves. But that's a problem, isn't it? Because can we save ourselves? No. According to scripture, according to the gospel, that's the whole point. The bad news is, guys, we're screwed. We've broken the world. We can't fix it. It's like we tore a hole within our own soul and we can't mend it and it's just getting bigger and the harder we try, the bigger the hole gets. It's just destructive. We're hopeless on our own. But the good news is that, praise God, we're not on our own. Amen? Amen. God loves us. God sends his son to save us, to be a savior, to fix what we broke, to mend the hole in our soul, to rescue and renew all of creation to bring us back into the family as sons and daughters so that on Father's Day, we have something to celebrate. God sent Jesus to be a substitute. Look at Romans. God shows his love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. John, the same guy who wrote this gospel, later wrote to the early church in 1 John, and he says this, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See that? Not, not that we deserved it. Not that we love God so much. Not that we did anything to catch his eye, but he loved us so much. Love, love, love. 
Martin Luther King Jr. said this, and I love this quote. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So that brings us to the heart of the matter. And this is kind of the main point today. Fear can't drive out fear. Force can't win our hearts. Nothing can free us from the death grip of fear, which causes us to hold on to our kingdoms and even kill our Savior. Fear does that. What does the Bible say is the only thing that casts out fear? Anybody remember? Yeah. Perfect love. First John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And where do we see that perfect love on display? At the cross. Amen. Think, of, think about that for a second as we start winding down. Think about Jesus' rise to power as king. It's subversive. Did Jesus come to conquer the kingdom and rip Israel out of these Pharisees' hands? No. Did Jesus come to conquer you and rip control of your kingdom out of your hands? No. Jesus came to save us from destroying ourselves when we try to be king and be in control and live for our dreams and plans instead of his, but he doesn't rise to power in the way we think. He didn't come in strength. How did he come? In weakness. He didn't come with wealth and riches to buy our heart. He came in poverty. He didn't lift himself up, but he allowed us to just slam him into the dirt. And he surprised those rulers. He surprised everyone by rising to power through weakness. Spurgeon says his his throne was the cross and his crown was made of thorns. The glory and the grace and love of God was powerfully put on display at the cross. One of my favorite poems by Edward Shalita says this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our words, wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. When we look at the cross today, when we see the undeserved love for God there for us, to take the penalty of our sin, to free us from the power of the broken selfishness of our hearts and the bondage of the lies we've believed that somehow we could be better off on our own, somehow we could be better off running our own lives, protecting ourselves, providing for ourselves, being kings of our own kingdoms. There on the cross, we see one who surrendered to his father, who prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And why did he do that? So he could have you. You are his prize. You are his treasure. His heart is for you. Are you afraid that Jesus will take your kingdom away? The one who gave everything for you? Do you remember in Luke where he says, fear not, little flock, it is the Father's good pleasure to to give you the kingdom? Are you afraid he'll ruin your life? He's the one who said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's not a tyrant of a king. If anything, we are. We're the little toddlers. And how, how much I love my little Gavin. Like, but infinitely more, the father loves us. He shows us his love for us in Christ. 
And guys, today, if you'll see his love for you on the cross, it'll change your heart. It'll change your heart if you'll allow yourself to dwell on the good news of the gospel and God's love for you in Christ Jesus. And out of those new hearts will come new lives. And this is the last 30 seconds of what I'm going to say today before we wind down. One more quote by Dallas Willard. What, what can those lives look like? Listen to what Willard writes. Kingdom living is living in the character and power of God. Living from the resources of his kingdom. It includes accepting the fact that we don't have to have our way. And why don't we have to have our way? Guys, because we've seen the heart of our king. A heart that's for us. We can believe his way is better. We can now believe his heart is for us. And now out of that truth, we get to live out of new hearts made alive by the gospel. We can live out kingdom life together. We get to display hearts that yearn for his kingdom to come and his will be done. And as we do, we have a hurting, broken world, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, people around us who will get a foretaste of the coming kingdom. They get a living movie trailer of what heaven's gonna be like right here in a community of people with new hearts made alive by the love of our Father. Amen? Let's pray. Will you stand with me as we pray? Thank you, Father, for your heart for us. Thank you for the good news that you sent your son to take our place. For the gospel that the king has come and he's brought his kingdom of peace with him to make the world the way it could be, the way it should be. Thank you that that kingdom was inaugurated upon the cross as he was crowned with thorns. Thank you that that kingdom was revealed in his glorious resurrection because he was only dead for three days. And now we have hope because of his resurrection. Thank you that that kingdom is gonna culminate one day when he returns. But until then, God, I pray I pray that we as a church made alive by the truth of the gospel, empowered by the spirit, may we live kingdom lives together, Lord. I pray that may we be a church that whets the appetites of our friends and neighbors and coworkers for your coming kingdom. May they feel your love as they experience our life together. May they come to know what we've discovered here today, that the only thing, that can change us from little tyrants to loving sons and daughters is the love of our Father displayed in the gospel. Thank you for not counting your son's life too dear a price to pay so that you could have us. Thank you on this Father's Day that we get to call you Father. You've welcomed us back home like the prodigal son. Put on us a ring and a robe. Kissed us. Killed the fatted calf and welcomed us home. Thank you for your grace. I pray that as we move into this next portion of responding to your truth today, as we take communion and chew through the good news of the, the coming kingdom, and we obey what, what you told us to do, the first words you started saying, we read earlier, that you came everywhere preaching the good news of the kingdom and telling everyone the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. As we take time to do that over the next 10 minutes or so, I pray that you Holy Spirit would just move in this place. That you would do what words can't and what, what anything that we try to pull off on a Sunday falls short in. Holy Spirit, would you reach our hearts 
Let us feel our love for you. Let us know that you are for us, you are with us. Transform us, God. Bring those of us who are here today that maybe have never believed from death to life, help us to see you in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. We're going to turn on some music, and for the next 10 minutes or so, the way we close our service is going to...